Amen. You can be seated. So as Cynthia mentioned, we're doing a series of case studies on the seven deadly sins, because these are the things that the devil will use to try and destroy you. And this uh, Sunday morning, we are looking at envy. And uh, each week, we're trying to take a song that uh, might illustrate or exemplify that different sin. So it's kind of like, here's the, the, the soundtrack of, of sin. And uh, uh, since the kids are in here, I picked out a song that you might be more familiar with. So uh, kids, uh, you can sing along if you want to. But uh, Eli, hit the chorus from... enough. <laughs> All right, but that song, uh, I thought that would be a good song to illustrate in one sense, one angle of envy. So that song is about how do you deal with envy when people are envious of you? So the way the song's set up is, I mean, people are jealous. They look at you and you go on too many dates and you get to stay up way too late. And so they're envious. And then, of course, you know, the chorus is player's going to play, hater's going to hate. You just shake, shake, shake it off. And uh, it's the idea of, all right, who are the haters? The haters are the people who look at your life and they're, they're envious. They want to critique. So this is how you deal with the haters who are out there. But one of the real challenges with envy is the problem isn't so much with all the haters who are out there. The problem is with the way it festers in here. See, if we're really honest, the way to deal with envy is not just to shake it off, but you have to cut it out. You have to get it out of your life because it's going to fester. And maybe a different song, we can go back maybe several hundred years to a different song. And if you're on our email uh, list, you saw yesterday I sent out a clip, the opening scene from the movie Amadeus. And in that opening scene, it's about uh, the story of a uh, Viennan composer named Salieri who is jealous of Mozart. Because he had dedicated his life and made a, he, he made a vow with God that I will, I will give you my life and my chastity if you make me great. And then here comes this impious, brash kid who just sweeps the whole musical world away and he's so envious. And there's an opening scene where um, he had just tried to commit suicide from the guilt that he feels from leading to Mozart's death. And uh, there's a priest who comes in to hear his confession and he starts playing some of his tunes that he wrote. And then, of course, the poor priest doesn't recognize any of them. He says, let me try one more. And he starts playing another one. It's a song that Mozart wrote. And the priest jumps, oh, yes, I know that one. And he starts, da, 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 da. And, uh, and then uh, he says, I didn't know you wrote that. And he says, I didn't. Mozart did. And that's the envy has entered into his soul and it's eaten it alive. And so envy is one of the things we even call the green eye of envy because it's, it's an infection that gets into your body through your eyes, and if it works its way down into your heart, will destroy you. 
and it'll destroy those around you. So what we want to do is we want to analyze it this morning so we can understand it and then make war on it so we can cut it out of our life. And so if we're really going to see a real, the real song to how to deal with envy, actually we need to go back several thousand years and we're going to like look at a song in the book of Psalms. So we're going to be in Psalm 73 and we're going to look at the case of Asaph as he wrestles with envy. So if you have your Bible or grab one on the rack, you can kind of open up to the middle. That's where the Psalms are. And we're looking for Psalm 73. And as we do, Psalm 73, all the Psalms are um, their prayers, their songs. And then the Psalter, the book of Psalms, is structured in five books. So there's five books to parallel the five books of Moses. And each of those, there's a kind of a broad theme. And what's interesting is Psalm 73 sets up book three, and it runs uh, from 73 all the way to 89. And actually, book three is the darkest part of the whole Psalter. Nearly all of the songs are about songs of crisis, songs of difficulty. Some are personal and emotional. Some are communal. And it leads uh, the next to last psalm in that book is 88, which is the darkest psalm and part, one of the darkest parts of the whole Bible. So uh, Asaph is writing these psalms. Several of them come from Asaph and Korah. And so who he is, is Asaph is the leader of the tribe of Levi. And he and his family had been instituted to lead the worship revolution that was going to take place under King David once they built the temple. So if you under, in order to understand biblical worship, there's a couple big pieces you need to um, know. One's the Garden of Eden and that we were originally created to enter into the Lord's presence. And then how worship then shifted and changed uh, up into the mountain of Sinai where Israel as a pilgrim people come into the Lord's presence at the mountain. And then the way the worship was transformed as it shifted to the temple where it became solidified. And now uh, a son of David is on the throne. And it was actually Asaph's job to enter institute uh, uh, musical instrumentation into worship. So at Sinai, they got the basic movements of worship, this threefold pattern of sacrifice that brings you into God's presence, lifts you up to his presence, and then now you feast at his presence. So there's a threefold movement at Sinai. And then now Asaph's job is because there's, there, there's a son of David's on the throne. And so now we sing because the Lord is on his throne. There's a king. And so that's when musical instrumentation became um, instituted in worship. So that's his job, is in essence to lead people into the joyful celebration of coming into the Lord's presence because we celebrate that the Lord's king is on his throne. But as life would work itself out, uh, they had this uh, incredible image of what life should be, and then it often hit reality. And so, so many of these psalms are set up this way. So Psalm 73, let's get kind of a basic structure, and then we'll move in. But verse 1, look at verse 1. This is the confession. Truly, God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. So this is what Asaph knows with his head. I know this. God is good. This is what I confess and say I believe. God's good to Israel. He's good to us, and it's, he's good to those who are pure in heart. But something's happened Look in verse 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. I am trying to do well. I'm trying to do right. I'm trying to worship in a way that's accept acceptable. I'm trying to do the right thing, but it seems like it's in vain because look how my life is going. And then look, in, for all the day long I've been stricken and I'm rebuked every morning. 
So he's experiencing suffering, and what that suffering is then, um, it's a catalyst for him to start looking around and say, what, why is life happening this way? Like, I'm trying to obey and be holy and do the right thing, and yet my life is falling apart. Why? And then look what he says in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So what happens is because he's experiencing personal suffering, that's led to him to open up his eyes and start looking around and say, hey, wait a second. Why, why are all these people experiencing their best life right now and I'm struggling in all of these ways? Why is my life not better? And then he becomes envious. And that envy starts to seep down into his soul. And he, he gets to the point where he says, I know i got to get it out or it will destroy me. So let's walk through and let's think about envy from a couple different things. Just first, what is it? And then what does it do? And then why do we need to destroy it or go after it? And then how do you cure it? Let's think the first thing. All right, what is envy? Because it's so fascinating as you look at all these different kind of sins, and a lot of them kind of cluster. So you have like greed and envy and jealousy and self-pity and covetousness, they all kind of cluster, and there's slight nuances between them all. And it's really helpful to really be able to diagnose them, because if you want to fight them, it helps to be able to name them and to be able to diagnose them. So like envy is slightly different from pity. So pity looks at things and says, all right, why me? Why is this happening to me? But envy looks at things, things out in the world and says, why not me? So envy thrives in your heart when you look out in the world at other people and say, why not me? Why not me? So envy begins to be unhappy with the happiness of others. Or envy will rejoice when others weep. And envy will cause you to weep when others are rejoicing. See, it's a little different from jealousy. Jealousy kind of guards what's yours. Um, a little different from being covetous. Covetous is kind of seeking something that belongs to someone else. But envy is, is taking a certain delight in the discouragement of another. You're looking around and it's thriving because you're seeing something good happening to someone. And say, why them? Why them? Why their job? Why their kids? Why not me. And so kids, you know that envy is starting to work in your heart when you see someone receive something good and do you know what you say? That's not fair. That's not fair. Why does he get the ice cream? Why does their class get pizza? Why do they get the LOL doll? Why do they get that new game? Why do they get... That's not fair. You're looking and you're seeing something good that's happening to someone else, and you say, why not me? It's not fair. And now adults, do you know what the trigger is to let us know envy is starting to lurk in our heart? Must be nice. <laughs> Look, the Jones are on another vacation. Must be nice. He got another new car. I <laughs> just got one last week, it seems like. Must be nice. Start saying, must be nice. You're looking at a good that someone else experienced. Say, well, why not me? So envy. Envy causes us to become bitter when other people begin to have it better. 
So that's what it is. Now, what causes it? Because here in Psalm 73, there's Asaph gives us this masterful ability to kind of diagnose the things that can flare up in your heart that'll cause you to say, mm, must be nice. And there's five of them. Look as you can walk through. Look in, look in verse 4. It's, he's looking. So verse 3 gives the summary that I look and they're prosperity. They are prosperous. It seems like they have everything. And then look at verse 12. 12 summarizes it again. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in riches. Their life is just so easy, always prosperous. But then he kind of walks five areas of their life that can cause envy to fuel in their heart. And the first one is physical beauty. Notice what he says, for they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's the literal ESV translation. So NIV, they're, they're healthy and strong. They're beautiful. So the first kind of line of envy is envying someone's physical appearance. And it is kind of interesting because you, you literally translate it, they're fat and sleek. Because what we perceive of as physical beauty often is culturally conditioned. So like in this world, you wanted to be, um, you wanted to be plumpy and you wanted to be pasty white. That was considered beautiful. Do you know Why? Because that meant you weren't the one who was out in the field doing manual labor. You had more than enough to eat, and you weren't the one out in the sun. And so, I mean, for some of us, just don't be discouraged about your appearance. Just think, I was born in the wrong century. I mean, you know, this is, this is first century B.C. look. Like, uh, for Queen Elizabeth, Puritan England, do you know, so for those of us who are um, hair follically challenged... You know, and for Queen Elizabeth, uh, in her, it was the high forehead was a sign of beauty. So women would pluck their foreheads to raise it so they would almost look bald. That was the sign of beauty. And did you know when she died, they actually found craters in her face because the makeup was, it was this pasty white. It was actually poison to keep her skin so pasty white because that was considered beauty. They put craters in her face. Can you imagine putting poison on your face to try and look beautiful? And maybe if you were born in like 12th century China, the sign of beauty would be, you know, small feet. So they're looking out in this world, and he's looking, and he's, he's being enticed. He says, they're so fat and so sleek, their bodies, um, but he's envious of physical appearance. Notice verse 5, the next thing. They don't have normal troubles like others do. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Their life is so easy. It's just, it's, it's easy money, easy life, easy prosperity. They're always happy, always smiling. They never have any problems. They live this charmed life. And of course, everybody who's lived more than five minutes, no, that's not true for anyone. You know, one of the deep, weighty realities of pastoral ministry is knowing that in this room, I, mean, I don't know how many people are in this room, 120, there's 119 broken hearts. People carry, everybody over the age of about seven has some type of of anxiety, fear, wound they're carrying, but envy has caused them to look out in the world and say, oh, their life is so easy. No problems. And then this is interesting in 6 and 7. I didn't quite know how to articulate, but it's, they're, they're gaudy. It says they wear pride like a necklace. So necklace is the uh, ability to display externally your wealth. So they would wear these gaudy necklaces, and it was like violence like a garment. So they're strutting around, and they're just gaudy. Their life is all, they're, they're demonstrative. They put themselves on display. And Asaph's looking, he's like, 
you know, he's becoming envious. They're the center of attention everywhere they go. And this is answer 8 and 10, uh, 8 through 10 is their popularity. It says, they scoff and speak with malice. They loftily threaten, threaten uh, oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. So these, these are people who they, they've built this incredible social media following. They sell books. They're gurus. They, if you want to talk about heavenly subjects, oh, they're experts. You want to talk about earthly subjects, oh, they're experts. You know, I have a blog, therefore I am a theologian and I'm an expert about all these things and all these things. I can tell you all about life. And they have this massive following. Look, it's in verse 10. He says, people are turning their back and going to them. Uh, literally, it's like waters, they flood into them, people flooding. And Asa's looking like, why is anyone listening to these people? And I wonder if there's a sense of self-pity. It's like, I'm trying to lead these uh, this musical revolution for our people and nobody's paying me any attention and they're listening to these yahoos. So they've built this incredible platform, popularity. And then 11 and 12 is just their audacity. They don't mind scoffing and mocking even the Most High Himself. So you kind of look through these, this list and which one is your heart most prone to become envious of? Do you become envious of someone's easy life? Say, oh, it must be nice to be able to have that, go here, do anything. Must be nice to have that, uh, that look, have that. You can show off the popularity. Which one are you most prone to? Now, let's think about what's the danger. Why is this dangerous for us? Because if you don't deal with it, one of the things that envy is so hard is because it sneaks up on you. Like every kid who looks and says, hey, that's not fair. If you would ask him, they're not being envious. They're just being just. There's, there's, there's unrighteousness. There's an injustice that has happened. They, some, ice cream was given to this one and not to this other. That's, that's not just. And so it can, it can sneak up on you. And most people will admit to certain sins, like we'll admit to maybe being impatient or um, having, you know, bouts of anger or a lack of kindness or some will even admit to being proud but few people will admit to being envious because it seems to make you so small and petty. So envy will sneak up on you, but the next thing it'll do, it'll steal. It's a thief. What envy does is it steals your ability to be grateful for what you have, for who you are, for what you have received. It steals your joy. Envy is probably one of the greatest joy thieves there is. It steals your contentment, it steals your peace. It steals. And that's so hard for us because we live in a society that's fueled by the systematic exploitation of envy in your heart. Nearly every advertisement you see and hear is trying to stoke the flames of envy to get you desiring. And you know, think about it. Even you look at the different things we can envy. You know, there's probably whole segments of our society who can't appreciate their own bodies, their own physicalities, how they look. You know, in America in 2017, a $10 billion cosmetic and plastic surgery industry. I put this together, so some of you heard this before. I put this together in 2007. So this was from a 2007 article for the girls in our youth group, because at the time I thought the girls in our youth group were being too... Um, I don't even know how to articulate it, but they were... They were, they were 
their imaginations were being captured by an image of beauty that was just false. I was like, don't long for this. And at the time, Jennifer Aniston, you know, I don't know if she's still like the, one of the cool kids, but at the time, she was uh, People Magazine, she was People Magazine's most beautiful woman on the planet. And part of the tagline was, um, uh, of, of the article is that her beauty is so unassuming. And that one of the lines was, she's roll out of bed beautiful. She just rolls out of bed beautiful. And then the, the girls are looking at this saying, oh, well, why can't I look like that? And so there was an article done in a different magazine called The Grand Total Is. And what they actually did is went and charted how much it cost her to roll out of bed beautiful. So let's, here's just some of the monthly numbers. So monthly haircut with cut, color, products, $949.95. Monthly skincare products, $891.95. Monthly makeup bill, which is only uh, one session with one of her makeup artists when she was on the show Friends, $4,402. Monthly eyebrow bill. And this is 2007, so I don't know what the... The uh, inflation, monthly eyebrow bill, $160. Monthly spray tan, $90. Fitness routine, $3,600. Diet, $1,840. Grand total, $11,933.90. To be roll out of bed beautiful costs you almost $12,000 a month. And then the writer of the article says, so next time you're sign over a photo of Aniston's face, legs, other things. Consider what the money that she spends to look beautiful for a year. So this is 2007. So for that money, it's $144,000 a year. It says you could buy a home in the Midwest. You could send your kids to college for four years. You could buy seven Honda Accords. Or you could fly round trip from LA to New York first class 44 times. That's not roll out of bed beautiful. And the reality is those type of images are being held up and it's generating certain envy where people say, oh, why can't I look like that? Because nobody looks like that. She doesn't even look like that. And it generates envy. And what it does is it steals from you your ability to be content, your ability to be joyful, your ability to be thankful. And not only that, it then will sour you. It sours all of life. See, when envy seeps into your heart, then it then sours all the things around you. You know, um, it can sour, you know, like our political world. And this isn't new. Some of you might remember uh, Vincent Foster, who was the deputy chief of staff for Clinton in his first administration, committed suicide after being in Washington for six months. And in the suicide note, he said, in Washington, ruining people's reputation is a spectator sport. It's envious. It sours. It sours political discourse. It sours the economy. Joseph Epstein, in a wonderful little book on envy, talks about how much of the housing crisis of 2008 was fueled by systematic neighbor envy. And then he talks about Marxism, the glorious revolution you know, in Soviet Russia. And he says, you can frame the story that it was the revolt of the envious. And the whole goal was to eliminate all the conditions for envy. And he said what they did was eliminate hundreds of millions of people, but didn't eliminate envy. And so it can sour our life. And then what it'll do is it'll shrivel your soul. Like once you become envious, you become small. You become critical, always finding fault. It just makes you small. And so it, the thing to do is all right, like pause and say, all right, how is this 
affecting me? In what ways am I overly critical? Is there anybody, um, anybody in my life where I'm offended at their talents? Is there anybody in my life where their success just rubs me wrong? Where I'm offended at their good fortune? Is there uh, anybody where I have a, un, kinda a, a rivalry or a competitiveness with? Do you ever feel pleasure when someone else is in pain? Or smile when they're sad? Envy's lurking at the door, waiting to destroy you. You know, one of the things we do when envy's there is we'll render false motives to others so quickly. You know, think about it in the context of your work. So like one of your coworkers that you don't like gets caught lying, and then how do you respond? We say, well, of course, that no good, rotten, two-faced, of course they did that. Now, you get caught, you're not even lying, you're just stretching the truth, and you say, hey, it's complicated. Well, you don't understand, there's, there's just complications. And so envy, it stains us, and we become people who begin to backbite, and then slander comes. And one of the things that the Bible says is that the work of the devil is that he constantly slanders the brethren, attacking them. So envy really is the ultimate loser's game. When it's in our hearts, nobody wins. It's the ultimate loser's game. And so what's the cure? Where do we need to go? And here in Psalm 73, there's this kind of beautiful progression of going down into the depths of envy. And then at the very brink of it taking, he gets snatched back. He comes back. And there's kind of a three-step process. First, he has to enter in. Then he has to own up. And then he walks with. But the first thing he has to do is he's got to uh, enter in. See, envy is, is the green eye of envy entered into his eyes and started staining his soul. And he needs his, his faith refocused and his vision refreshed. So look in verse 13, uh, uh, 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I just don't understand why the world seems to be this way until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discern their end. So he walks into worship. And it's his job to put, uh, to put music to those three great movements of worship. And so he walks into the sanctuary. He comes with God's people into God's presence. And he begins to sing the songs and to experience the sacrifices. What he would see is the three cycles of sacrifice where he would look and behold, there's the Lamb of God who's taking away my sins so we can now enter into God's presence. And then there's a sacrifice who lifts us up into his presence. And then there's the fellowship offering. So now we eat and we feast and we taste that the Lord is good. He had to come to worship. And see, it's at worship. When it's done well, it refocuses you. It reminds you about the ultimate reality. And what's really true. See, all week long, you're awash in a world that's trying to stoke envy in your heart. And hopefully here you can come and have a refuge where that can be blocked out and you can be reminded what is ultimate reality. And what is the deepest things about who I am and who we are and where we're going and what we need. He enters into the sanctuary and he looks and the only way he can come in is if there's the blood of the lamb. That's the only way he can get in. Because envy thrives when we look at others and say, why not me? Why not me? But envy dies when we look at the lamb and say, why not me? Why not me? And the we, where we are on this side of the cross, the way envy dies is we look at the cross and say, why not me? Why not 
me. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And when we sing that, it reorients us. It kind of washes our eyes clean so now we can see the world as it really is and ourselves as we really are. If you want your envy to be cut out of you, you have to look first to the cross. You have to enter into worship. But notice the next thing he does, I love this, he just has to own it. He can't pretend like he wasn't wrestling with these things. Look at verse 21. Here's his act of confession. He says, my soul was embittered when I was pricked in heart. He says, I was brutish, I was ignorant, I was like a brute beast towards you. I mean, that's an honest confession. It's actually pretty kind of stark language. Every culture has a way of calling yourself um, like animal backsides. And you do things like, all right, you're a pig head, you're a, you're a donkey. This is what this is. This is their version of, I was a brute beast. I was a jerk. I was a fool. I was such a pig head. And he's just owning it. And there, there's no redemption without repentance. There's no healing without owning it. It's one of the reasons we do confession every week because we want it to be at least one moment in your week and in your life. Because we'll spend the whole week finger pointing, blame shifting. And here's our moment to just own that the deepest problem we have is us. It's in us. He has to own it. But then notice what the beauty that comes after that is the fellowship. He walks with the Lord. He realizes who he is and what he really has. Look what he says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You haven't left me. Even though I'm struggling, I'm suffering, and I'm almost slipping because I'm becoming envious of those out there, you're still with me. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. You'll receive me into glory. And those beautiful things of, I am in your presence. See, if you want envy to die, you have to, you come into the pre a greater presence. And isn't it a beautiful thought to know he, he holds my hand. He's holding me. I mean, you can almost, in, in my mind's eye, I can imagine, you know, a seven-year-old girl terrified at night afraid of the darkness, and she lifts up a hand and says, Daddy, you know, hold my hand. And you can fast forward and 25 years later and that same little girl in a hospital bed, pregnancy complications have started to turn in a direction uh, no one's really sure of, and things get really anxious, and she holds out her hand and says, hold my hand to her husband. Maybe same little girl 50 years later lying in another hospital bed. This time she's not bringing life into the world. They're trying to preserve hers. And she holds it up. She says, will you hold my hand? Because having someone who loves you there every step of the way in life's journey to hold your hand is so comforting. And notice what he says. He says, you're there. Every situation I'm in, I can lift up an empty hand and you hold it. I have your presence. What else do I need? He says, and then notice the cycle. You hold, you guide, and then you receive. Meaning every situation in your life, he's there. In the beginning, when you need someone to hold you, he holds you. As you're moving through, life is a journey. He's guiding you. So you come to Fork in the Roads and you say, I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. Should we take this job? Should we say yes? Should we say no? Should we move? He's guiding you every step of the way. And at the very end, there he is, arms wide open, receiving you in. 
And then notice the beautiful lines that he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire but you. See, I look at all the prosperity they have, and it fuels envy in in my heart, but then I have to realize I have something 10,000 times more precious. You know, one of the Charles Spurgeon, 18th century Baptist, uh, 19th century Baptist preacher, and it's kind of downtown London on the south side. It was really very extremely poor area, and there was a member of his church he loved to go eat with. He said it was just one of the most joyful people he had ever met. And every time Spurgeon would come in, he'd, you know, he had almost nothing. And then he'd just smile and say, it's all this and Jesus too. I've got all this and Jesus too. I've got everything. And uh, he is with you. You have the ultimate possession. And then he says, my heart and my flesh, they may fail. The day will come. I look at them and I'm so envious of their bodies. They're strong. They're beautiful. They're sleek. They're muscular. It's going to fail one day. In my heart and my flesh, they will fail. But in that day, you are my possession. You are my portion forever. I will be stable. I'll be okay because you are my refuge. So we need to see it's his blood that washes our eyes clean. And so the green eye of envy can be cured so we can see clearly. And we need him to work into our hearts the reality that if all I have is Christ, that's all I need. And that Jesus is better. One of the songs we sing, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. Help me. It's really true that he is. Now I need you to help me believe it. Because it's only as we strangle envy and cut it out that we'll really experience freedom. We'll really be free to love others and really experience joy. One of my favorite stories to illustrate this is from a country pastor who was in a small country town. And uh, in his church, you know, kind of small towns, one of, the, one of the big deals in the town is the kind of local beauty contest. And so, like, you know, our town in Alabama was Miss Hanley High School and whoever, and this was a big deal. And uh, there was a little girl in his church who was in the, in the contest and, um, you know, it didn't really go that well. And, uh, you know, many of these small towns, they don't give out participation trophies. They let you know where you stand. And so she got, like, you know, 12th out of 13. And uh, he was preaching on um, Jesus' command to love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor as yourself. And he could tell, like, she was sitting in the back. And, you know, small, you can kind of see everybody. You can, and she can tell she was, she was wrestling with what he was saying. And, it's, you know, the wheels are spinning. And as soon as the sermon was over, she made a beeline up to him and said, now, wait a second. So you're telling me that Jesus wants me to be as happy for the girl who won the beauty contest as if I won it myself? And he was taken aback. He's like, wow, that's actually really good application. I didn't even think about that. Maybe she could help me write my sermons. That's, that's my, and just kind of like, huh. I, and before he could even respond, she just shook her head and says, that's one strange religion you got there, mister. <laughs> it is a strange religion you got there. But do you realize how much joy you're sacrificing in your life because of envy? Because we're not loving our neighbor as ourselves. We're not as happy for them when they succeed as if we, we succeed ourselves. You know, some of you are in business and you write contracts and you know, don't leave money on the table. How much joy are you leaving on life's table because envy is stealing it from you? you know, don't leave 
joy on the table. The only way we can enter into and really love our neighbors as ourselves is if Christ, by his grace, kills envy in our hearts. So let's pray and let's ask him to make that happen. So Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that in every stage, every season, every situation, you are with us. And we come and we confess to you that uh, the real problem in our lives is not all of the haters out there, but it's all of the hatred that's in here. And so we ask that you would heal it. And we confess to you, Lord, I pray for everyone here who their tendency is to envy the physical beauty of others, and it causes them to, um, to be insecure and look down on themselves. Free them from that. Pray for everyone in here who their, maybe their tendency is to envy what appears to be the easy success and prosperity of others. Pray that you would uh, free them from that. Free us from being envious people. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. So if envy die, or envy thrives when we look out in the world and say, why not me? It dies when we look at the cross and say, why not me? And every week at Trinity, we, we celebrate. We come to the Lord's table because it's a celebration that reminds us, why not you? And the reason why is because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him won't perish. But you can have everlasting life. You can taste real life. It was because of his love that Christ was given. And so we come each week to remember and celebrate. And as, as you taste the juice and really the cracker, as you taste those two small things, let it, let it uh, be a reminder uh, and ask the Lord to help root envy out of your heart. So here at Trinity, we'll have four stations. The one in the back corner is gluten-free, so if you have gluten allergy, uh, you come. And once all our servers are in place, uh, you come. Mm-hmm.